Hello and welcome to the New Zealand Initiative podcast. My name is Ben Craven. Experts love to disagree with one another, especially economists. But is it a bit of a beat-up? Today I'm joined by our Chief Economist, Dr Eric Crampton, to discuss the findings of the new Economics Expert Survey. Eric, welcome to the podcast. Good afternoon. What is the Economics Expert Survey and how's it been established? So last year, the New Zealand Association of Economists and the New Zealand Initiative set up an expert panel to start asking expert economists questions on economic policy to see whether there was economic consensus among experts or whether we disagreed with each other. If we step back a little bit from this, these kinds of surveys have been longstanding in the United States. They've been started recently in Australia, and they can be really helpful When I was a graduate student, one of my professors, uh, Brian Kaplan, had done some work looking at differences in opinion between members of the public and expert economists on matters of just positive economics, how economic policy works, what sorts of things are stopping the economy from being quite as productive as it otherwise might be. And he found just really sharp differences between economists and the public on matters of public policy. So while economists seem to disagree with each other a lot, The gulf between economists and the public is much larger, and it really matters. So in Brian's work, he'd seen that compared to economists, the public was generally skeptical about immigration. Anything that keyed on foreigners scared them, foreign trade, migration. They were generally pessimistic. They liked make-work schemes, and they were generally anti-business. Now, when we look at economic commentary in the news or on uh, radio, news magazine programs, You'll usually find an economic commentator on either side of whatever the public policy issue is, but that's less enlightening about what the consensus among experts might be. It matters to know that uh, because it's just too easy otherwise to dismiss whoever you don't like the sound of as being uh, idiosyncratic, a gadfly, misinformed. I like what the other guy is saying. I'll pick him as my preferred expert. (laughs) So you've got this kind of a general problem. I think Robin Hanson calls it, he who pays the piper must know the tune. If you don't know economics yourself and you're presented with two people who are billed as being economists and they're saying very different things, how do you know which one is saying the right thing? Who is better representing the truth or sort of the consensus within the discipline? Getting measures of whether there is expert consensus then kind of matters. So I was talking with Dennis Wesselbaum at the New Zealand Association of Economists about this around the time of the Economic Association meetings last year in Wellington. And we were thinking through how you would set up an expert panel in New Zealand to sort of mirror what had been done in the United States and Europe and again in Australia. Oh, so they do them overseas quite a bit as well? Yeah. So the one, the IGM panel survey, I'll step back a little bit. Um, the Institute for Global Markets at the University of Chicago Booth School, it's, they've been running surveys at least through since 2012. I'm not sure exactly when they started, but the earliest ones that I've seen of theirs started around 2012. They regularly ask a panel of economists, and they've got about 60 of them, whether each of those economists strongly disagrees, disagrees, is uncertain, agrees, or strongly agrees with each of a series of propositions. And they also ask them how confident they are in their answer. One of the beautiful things in the IGM setup is that each of the economists answering the question has the opportunity to add a comment if they want. So it's pretty helpful. You can track each one of these experts over time to see whether they're giving consistent answers, if they just seem to be some right-wing or left-wing radical that's just always saying kind of partisan sort of lines. 
you can track them all over time and you can see where the expert consensus is. It's pretty nice. And they ask their questions very frequently. So you can have a measure or a read on what the discipline thinks on a series of policy questions, kind of in real time. Right, I think there's a good line there, what the discipline thinks rather than what just a particular commentator might think who happens to have a background in economics. Um, what did this one show? What, what were the results like in the survey? Well, we picked three questions on this one, which were following on from questions that had already been asked in the IGM panel survey, and we picked them in areas where we'd kind of thought that economists in the United States at least seem to agree with each other, and they seem to be at odds with what well, some of the Wellington policy discussion had been. So looking to see there whether the New Zealand economic consensus would mirror the consensus found overseas or whether New Zealand economists were a little bit different than their overseas colleagues. And then whether that varied from what seems to be the policy zeitgeist in Wellington. So first we had to establish an expert panel and it needed to be not just me and Dennis picking our friends or people that we thought made sense or something like that. We had to have some kind of external measure of, okay, well, what, who should be on that kind of a panel in New Zealand? So what we did was we looked at everyone who had been made a distinguished fellow of the New Zealand Association of Economists, and that's some of our most distinguished economists, then life members and past presidents of the association, as well as Economist of the Year winners in NZIR's Economics Award. So they don't award that every year. I think in 2020, they hadn't given an award. And in 2021, they shifted it to a young researcher of the year kind of deal. But in prior years, it was always their economist of the year. And there's been some overlap between those sets. So some people have been both distinguished fellows and life members and economist of the year. Right. So you're looking for a way to determine who, who, who actually was who an expert economist. Who should be the experts. Yeah. So that was our, our bar. We asked every one of them whether they'd be willing to serve on an expert panel. And a lot of them agreed, which is great. Uh, nothing compels them to answer each and every survey question we send out. They might not have time or they might find themselves conflicted, but they've all been asked. Then we sent out the survey. And the first survey asked questions about rent control, about immigration, and about what's been called modern monetary theory. Well, very topical at the moment. Yeah. So rent control, as I have understood it, the economic consensus is that it really doesn't help in improving outcomes for tenants. Like you might think about it as a last ditch short term thing in a very dysfunctional market, but even then it'd be a little bit questionable. The economic consensus I had seen as being these things don't work. They cause cues. They make outcomes worse from, for, even from the perspective of a tenant outcomes wind up being worse. You see the horror stories about decade-long queues to get a rent-controlled apartment in, in uh, Stockholm, about the messes that eventuate in New York. Like you'll remember Seinfeld episodes of the apartment when the old lady who lives upstairs from Jerry, she passes away, and then there's an apartment that becomes available. And when these things are rent-controlled, they can be severely underpriced, so then people use other ways of competing for them. I'm digressing a bit. In general... Economists think that these things are a mess and that the underlying problem is just a lack of supply. So what you want to do is make sure that there's an, enough availability of rental housing and that can help protect tenants and keep, keep rental prices down. So we asked the question, very close to the wording from the IGM one, there wasn't any substantial difference, just asking whether rent controls, as have been used in places that have used them, have improved the availability and affordability of rental housing for tenants. And in the United States version of the survey, the vast majority of economists disagreed or strongly disagreed with that proposition. Mm -hmm. 
And the same held true also here in New Zealand. So if I can pull the numbers up, it was uh, in the United States, we had 2% of respondents in the United States agreeing with the proposition that rent controls help, 7% uncertain, 49% disagreeing, and 32% strongly disagreeing. And then you had 2% that didn't have an opinion and 7% that didn't answer. It was pretty overwhelming then. Yeah. In New Zealand, we had um, 41% strongly disagreeing, 41% disagreeing, 12% uncertain, and 6% agreeing. So very comparable results between New Zealand expert economists and American expert economists. So the discipline has a bit of a consensus on these. It isn't driven by, well, this one commentator that you might not like, uh, say doesn't like rent controls or just hates uh, the idea of government regulation. Economists who have looked at this over decades say that the things don't work for the kinds of aims that their proponents uh, put up for them. So that's worth knowing, and especially when the government has been kind of toying with those ideas. We'd worried that they might be bringing those in earlier this year. The Prime Minister has since seemed to rule them out, said that they're not going to go that direction. As And um, the Finance Minister has also said that they're, they're ruling them out. We, the week before that, I think it was Poto Williams had said that they're going to be investigating rent controls with a view to putting them in place. I don't know whether they had some polling in the interim or whether they had economists yelling at them in the interim, <laughs> but one way or another, the PM and the finance, finance minister said that they weren't going to go that way, which is hopeful, but there's always still the potential that they come up with some other regulations in the area that have the same effect as rent control, but they're just going to use a different name for it. So it's a good idea to keep an, a watching brief on it. I don't want to um, put my own views in where I'm trying to put up what the, what the expert panel said. The panel only said that they strongly disagree with the idea that rent controls, as they've been put in place, improve the availability or the affordability of rental housing. I take that as pretty damning for rent controls. Mm, exactly. And what else do they say about uh, immigration and modern monetary theory? Sure. So if we step back again to Brian Kaplan's work a couple decades ago, and it's getting old now, it's almost two decades. It's about two decades since he was doing that survey work. Wow. So he was finding that the public were really, really prone to blaming economic troubles on either there being too many immigrants or too many profits going overseas or international businesses being bad or jobs being offshored. Anytime that you could blame a foreigner, the modal respondent, who's a member of the public, wanted to blame foreigners. And economists said, no, there's not really any problem there. If, if anything, immigrants and foreigners are helping. So the IGM has a series of questions on immigration. We only were able to fit one in on this round. The IGM panel question that we replicated here, they have a series of questions on immigration. We'll probably get to some more of those in April. But the one that we replicated here was asking, in the American version, whether the average American would be made better off if there were substantial increases in the number of highly educated migrants into the United States every year. And an overwhelming majority of economists said, yes, the average American would be made better off by this. Now, I knew about that survey result, and I knew about the prior work from Brian looking at differences between economists and the public. And Wellington seemed to have its own weird view of how immigration works relative to the profession as I understood it. So the profession as I understood it had done decades of work since Brian's work, looking at a few event studies in the United States, greater refinement on this really neat unintentional experiment in the, in the Marielle boat lift where a whole pile of Cubans 
immigrated to Miami in a very short period of time. There's been tons of empirical work looking at the effects of that on wages in the United States. And the best synopsis of the literature, as I have understood it, is that we should expect there to be, if anything, small positive effects on the wages of locals when you have more migration. It's pretty hard to find evidence of any substantial bad effects. There's lots of studies that find no particular effect. And then the expert consensus in the U.S. was that the average American is made better off. In Wellington, the policy community seemed to have convinced itself that, if anything, migrants hurt productivity, that they make it less likely that firms are going to be investing in retraining their workers or upskilling them, or that employers will just take some easy route and hire an already trained foreigner instead of training up a Kiwi, and this is harmful for dom domestic labor markets. Or you'll hear theories that migrants coming in have effects on overall productivity by increasing real exchange rates and real interest rates. If any of that were true, then we'd expect that even high-skilled migration would not be good for the average Kiwi. And I just didn't believe that, right? Mm. Wellington seemed to have convinced itself of something that was really jarring for me. It almost felt like gaslighting, like you're, you come from one world where all of the experts you've talked to have concluded one thing, and then you get to Wellington and you're the weirdo. It's like a little bubble. Well, yeah, it's got its own it's got its own belief bubble, and it's pretty hard to convince them otherwise. So I wanted to know whether I was going crazy or whether the Wellington consensus was just off in its own world. So we set a question following the American one. We asked our expert panel to give their view on the following statement. The average Kiwi would be better off if more highly educated foreign workers were allowed to migrate to New Zealand each year. And the expert consensus here was almost identical to the expert consensus in the United States. So among Kiwi economists, 41% uh, strongly agreed that the average Kiwi would be better off if more highly educated foreign workers were allowed to migrate to New Zealand each year. 47% agreed 12% were uncertain and nobody disagreed. Wow. Right? That's huge. And that's very similar to the U.S. numbers. So in the U.S. numbers, you had 39% strongly agreeing, 50% agreeing, 5% uncertain, and 5% who didn't answer. So across a vast Pacific Ocean, professionals whose expert discipline is economics and have either looked at it themselves or are familiar with the literature produced by their colleagues who work directly in the field... They say that more highly skilled migrants is beneficial for pre-existing residents. And that's substantially different than what the Wellington policy view seems to be. Right. So there seems to be a consensus or near consensus, at least in the, within, the, within the discipline of economics. On those two questions, yes. Wow. Um, what did it say about modern monetary theory? Because that was the, uh, the third question, right? Well, this one was getting at uh, this sort of faddishness that seems to go through uh, Wellington policy circles. It's pretty easy to find like ideas that just catch on that have been long discarded by academic economists as yeah. being unviable. MMT seems to be this weird riff on old social credit theories almost, uh, but it's pretty hard to tell because the people who advocate for it really don't want to put up a formalized mathematical version of what they're saying is how the world works. So in normal economics, if you put up a macro model, you are specifying your assumptions, you're doing it all up in math, you come up with a general equilibrium, and people can tweak it and test it and see how it all hangs together. Different assumptions might hold in different states of the world, different conditions, but you can see how the whole thing hangs together 
through the mathematical modeling of it. And so far, MMT advocates have used more of what some economists call a guru-based approach than anything else. And what I mean by that, in normal economics, you don't have to go back and ask the person who developed the theory what they think would be the implications for scenario X or scenario Y, because it's all there specified in the math. Right, it's all encompassing. You can look at the math, you can say, all right, if we tweak this assumption, this is what happens. If we tweak this assumption, this is what happens. Sure. What happens if we think that, I don't know, um, propensity to save is higher than we otherwise thought, or if there's some other shock or one of our parameters changes, you can tease through the effects of that because it's all been specified and you can see how it hangs together. In MMT, the answer is always, well, go back and ask the people who've written the book. Doesn't sound very robust. Well, not really. So at least in the U.S., it's been fairly dismissed. Here, you'll see it show up and taken more seriously than it should be in some of the policy context. Some economic commentators say things that sound very much like MMT, even though they won't use the term. So because they refuse to formalize it properly, it's harder to come up with key propositions from it. But in the IGM survey, they'd identified what they thought to be a core proposition of it, which was that governments able to borrow in their own currency can finance as much real expenditure as they want because they can print money, basically. So the overwhelming majority of economists in the U.S. disagreed with that proposition. They said it's just not true. We, should, we shouldn't be listening to that. So we asked the same question again here, and I'll pull up the exact wording. So the exact wording was, countries that borrow in their own currency can finance as much real government spending as they want by creating money. It's trivially true that a government can finance some of its expenditure by printing more money. That's monetizing debt or inflation-based financing. But the question here was, can finance as much real government real government spending as they want, which economists should disagree on. And here in New Zealand, we had uh, just under 6% who were uncertain about the proposition, 35% who disagreed, 47% who strongly disagreed, and then 10% that, uh, 10, 11% that either had no opinion or didn't answer in total. So pretty strong disagreement in the New Zealand sample on that one. And it, again, mirrored the U.S. results. Economists both sides of the Pacific tend to agree with each other. We train in similar places. We follow each other's literature. It's not like papers from one side of the Pacific don't make it to the other side. There's an international community here where we learn from each other and there develops these expert consensuses. Right, so this raises a really good point then. So across all those three questions, there seems to be a overwhelming consensus from economists from the discipline why is it, do you think, that there seems to be, whenever whenever there's a media story, there seems to be competing economic commentators? Are we giving too much of a platform to fringe ideas? I think it's harder for people who aren't experts to identify what the consensus is. So you'd be able to point to the dozen or so regular go-tos that the journalists across the country will have when they're looking for comment on economic matters. There'll be some of the bank economists that frequently comment. There's me, there's Shamabiel, Brad Olson. Among academics, occasionally Tim Hazeldean, but not nearly often enough. Uh, Norm Gemmel sometimes comes in from VicUni. He's super, but again, not nearly enough. There aren't that many who, at least as academics, can find the time to pick up the phone and when a journalist calls and give informed comment back. 
And some of it is that they're just reluctant to stray from their specific areas of research. So even if they're teaching this stuff to all their undergrads, mm. they might be reluctant if they're not personally the ones doing research in the area. And sometimes it's just that, well, their pro vice chancellor might get mad at them for saying things that are maybe less fashionable, even if they are the core of what we teach in micro and macro intermediate level. So there's, there are fewer go-tos than you might like. And underlying training in economics among some of New Zealand's economic commentators is also a little weaker than you might see in parts of the United States. It's pretty normal in the U.S. that the minimum bar for being an economic commentator or being called an economist is that you've finished a PhD somewhere, which has a fairly rigorous set of entry uh, barriers. You've got to pass comprehensive examinations in microeconomics and in macroeconomics and some places also in econometrics and statistics. The, the thesis is common... New Zealand uh, PhDs, you have to write a thesis as well. Mm -hmm. Not that many of the commentators here have PhD level training, let alone from U.S. institutions that have the greater breadth of training. It can be harder for journalists and for the public at large to tell who really knows what they're talking about in economic commentary. A lot of people are advertised as economic experts who have relatively little training or might not understand the core theory. And... Too often we wind up in spots where ideas that take hold in Wellington are beneath the contempt of some of the academic economists, that they're just not even worth rigorously rebutting in a paper because all that'll happen if you submit it somewhere is the journal editor will say, well, everybody knows that that's dumb. Why would you even write this paper? Right? It's, that's what I mean by beneath the contempt. It's just not worth a serious academic economist's time to go in and try and rebut these things. But that means that bad ideas can remain in circulation too easily, and especially when it's harder, again, for the journalists to tell who are the experts, who just has an opinion on the contrary side. And there hasn't been a measure of the consensus, right? So I could say, well, this is true. And somebody might think, well, you would say that you think that markets work and you underrate government. Now, Tim Hazeldean at Auckland University, he's to the left of me on like how much redistribution there should be, but that's more of a values question than anything else. Yeah. It's not about like how price theory works. I agree with him most of the time when he's writing stuff on just basics of how economics works. Somebody from the right might look at something that Tim says and just dismiss him because they think he's on the wrong ideological side. If you don't have some grounded measure of what the profession thinks, then it's harder to identify people whose views are just completely idiosyncratic or even wrong, right? It's a good idea to know what the consensus is. It's one of the reasons that the climate scientists had that big survey a couple of decades ago where you find, what is it, 95% of climate scientists agreeing with that global warming is happening. Because otherwise, it's just too hard when it's always easy to find somebody who's saying, well, it isn't happening or there's some problem in the measurement and they sound authoritative. And if you're not an expert in it yourself, like, how are you going to adjudicate between those? It'd take a lot of work. There are some spectacular science journalists in New Zealand who have done that work and can readily identify cranks. They can identify the cranks in, well, in some of the COVID response stuff as well. If somebody's an anti-vax person and is claiming that vaccines cause autism, well, the science journalists know that's just crazy stuff. It's not really to be entertained. Vaccines never do that. The guy who had promulgated that claim while well, they had forced him to retract the paper because it was shown to be all wrong. Mm -hmm. It's harder to identify that in economics, and especially if you don't have a good measure of what the consensus is. And my hope is that 
as we ask more of these questions, it'll be easier to tell what the consensus is. And it could be the case that uh, in some in some cases, I might find that I'm the one who's wrong and that the consensus has moved in a way that I hadn't expected. But that'll be a good discipline for me too. Uh, you've mentioned it a couple of times in this interview so far, but I, w- I do want to come back to it because I think it deserves a bit more attention. In a recent Insights column, that's our regular newsletter, you wrote... What passes for economics in Wellington has seemed increasingly out of step with academic consensus. Ideas long dismissed by academic economics as mad or harmful become trendy in Wellington circles. Why is that and what's causing it? That's a really hard problem and I don't have a great answer to it. Part of it is the lack of expertise within the ministries themselves. So you can have people appointed to pretty senior economist positions with very inadequate training or who have come in explicitly as hating the mainstream. So I'll probably be, uh, I'll, I'll be doing one of the uh, not welcome in New Zealand things of critiquing a, a, a colleague, but at the New Zealand Economic Association meetings last year, the incoming chief economist for the Ministry for Primary Industries gave a presentation that opened with her effectively saying that all of the mainstream in economics was wrong. That's a, big position to take? Well, it's it's a position that we absolutely need to have within academia. If you don't have academics that are always questioning the consensus and testing it and making sure that it's correct, then we, we don't know if we're getting something wrong or if we're all going off on wrong direction. So it's important that we have that stuff in academia. Within the ministries, though, you would hope that the position would rather be taking the insights from what the vast professional consensus of economists or whatever the discipline is, right? Like you've got a chief scientist in the Ministry of Health. I don't think that he's going for fringe views in health. He's trying to say, okay, in a rapidly changing COVID environment, what is what are my colleagues all thinking about this? What, what have they concluded? All right, let's try and apply that, right? You don't want to be finding the oddball heterodox folks that have very fringe views. It was really strange to have the incoming chief economist for the Ministry for Primary Industries addressing an audience of professional economists saying, well, all of that stuff about neoclassical economics, I learned that in undergraduate and I know it's all wrong. Now, it's an attack on the discipline. Well, I I think it's an attack on public sector integrity. Right. That the public sector simply should not be hiring people of that nature. There is an important role for that, not in the public sector, in academia. In the public sector, it should be doing the best we can to apply the insights that have been honed through academic debate that the vast majority of the professionals in the area agree on. Take those, apply them to policy as best you can, and try and communicate them through in your agency. So you have to wonder about public sector hiring processes that result in the selection of people as chief economists who seem to hate economics. does seem quite bizarre. Right, so we've, we've talked a lot uh, in this interview about the New Zealand Economics Expert Survey um, and how there seems to be quite a large consensus across all these fundamental economic questions. But I did want to put it to you. Are there any sort of economic beliefs that you might have that members of the Economic Expert Survey might be a bit divided on? Well, if I look across the IGM panel surveys, I agree with the consensus on most of these. And where I have idiosyncratic views, I try to suppress them in uh, 
when I was an academic, I tried to suppress some of them when I was doing my teaching and I try and teach the mainstream core as I understood. These are all the things that economists agree on. And maybe there'd be 10 minutes at the end at most of, okay, well, and, and Crampton also thinks these three things, but other economists will disagree for these reasons. Relative to the modal economist, I'm probably a little bit more skeptical about the merits of government intervention, not so much on the math, but more on the knowledge problems and the incentive problems and sort of a Demset-style comparative institutional analysis that is not enough to just point to the existence of a market failure as justifying policy, but also weighing up how the real-world application of that policy would pan out and whether the failures inherent in that are going to be greater than the failures inherent in well, just letting markets work. So I might be a little bit more skeptical on whether interventions can be feasible and practicable over time, but I don't think I'm far out of the consensus on that. I have a lot of fun entertaining some ideas that are perhaps a little strange, but they, never, they don't really show up in anything that I work on here. There's a fun line of academic research that looks at, well, what would happen if we just never had central banks? Canada <laughs> never had a central bank during the Great Depression. They came out of it way better than the U.S., who had a central bank. Really? I didn't well, know that. So the U.S. had crazy sets of banking restrictions, and that made it a lot harder for them to adjust. Now, what would things look like if you just didn't have government-issued money and you had banks issuing their own currencies? There's really interesting macroeconomic work on that. Larry White, George Selgin, they've done really neat stuff. I put higher odds on that they are correct in what they do than the modal economist might, but there'll be some attenuation bias for the modal economist because they probably haven't thought about it much. Another area where I might be out of step with some of my colleagues, but it's hard to quantify, is I suspect that I'm even more pro-immigration than the modal economist. The modal economist is very happy about immigration, uh, understands that it's generally to the benefit. I weigh pretty heavily some of the literature that's come out claiming that uh, open borders is the equivalent of trillion dollar bills sitting on the sidewalk, that if there were, I'm not kidding, that the increase in wealth across the world, if people were allowed to move to places where they could be far more productive, it's enormous. It's the biggest opportunity going. So I suspect that I'm more pro-migration than the modal economist, although I if there were a button in front of me to abolish all borders tomorrow, I'd be pretty nervous about that button. But if it were a button saying, as of 2060, there will no longer be any borders and everybody has time to adjust and to adapt and to get ready for this because there's going to be no more immigration control anywhere in the world as of 2060, that's a button I'd push. I suspect that most economists wouldn't push that button. But again, it's also not something that uh, we've been advoca advocating for here, here either. It's I have fun playing with some of these more fringe ideas, uh, but it really is neither here nor there for any of the policy discussions here because nobody, it, it's not within the realm of uh, policy dis discussion anyways. It's just fun to think about. Right. I think, that, I think that's a good point, really. That, so there's uh, the academic discipline, uh, there's the academics and the economic consensus um, on some pressing public policy issues. So while economists might have their own personal beliefs and their, their personal interests, um, there's still some overwhelming consensus on fundamentals. Well, thanks so much for telling us more about the Economic Expert Survey, Dr. Eric Crampton, and more results will be released in due course, and we look forward to discussing them. Thank you, Ben.
stay up to date with our latest research, opinions and events, sign up to our weekly insights newsletter at nzinitiative.org.nz.